American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Hi, welcome. In his book, Confederates in the Attic, Tony Horwitz tells a story of a young man who was murdered in Tennessee for an incident involving the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag murder. And that happened in 1995. What the victim's father said was, they say that war ended a long time ago, but around here, it's like it's still going on. For those devoted to or offended by the Confederate flag, in a sense, it's like it's still going on. But for many more Americans, in different ways, it is. When the poet Alan Tate, who was born 34 years after the Civil War ended, sat down to compose his seminal ode to the Confederate dead, for him it was a potent event. When Tate's friend Robert Lowell accepted a request to read a poem at the Boston Arts Festival in 1960, for him the Civil War was a live and painful issue. And the writers before us today, Frank Bedart, Vijay Shishadri, and Kevin Young, are here because for each of them, in some way, it's still going on. They aren't done with the war, or it isn't done with them. It goes without saying that the Civil War was consequential enough for continued mourning and attention. Four years, nearly three-quarters of a million dead. And needless to say, the central difficulty has not been resolved. Still, the attention from contemporary poets is notable. What is it about this war? Perhaps these writers sought the Civil War as a way to muse upon their country's ills, as Melville put it in a wartime poem. Edward Hirsch said of Tate's ode, the poem universalizes from the situation of the South in the middle and late 20s to the larger condition of the modern world, and Tate found his world chaotic and degenerate. Or perhaps they have written to excoriate their country's ills. As Lowell wrote to A. Alvarez when the book For the Union Dead was coming out in 1964, American poets are now free to say what we want to, and somehow what we want to say is the confusion and sadness and incoherence of the human condition. It may be a more miserable time, more than others, with the world liable to blow up. Perhaps our panelists agree with Edmund Wilson, who wrote in the same period, that if we would truly understand at the present time the kind of role that our own country is playing, we must go back and try to see objectively what our tendencies and our practice have been in the past. Wilson's conclusion was, America devours as much as we can like a sea slug of vigorous veracity. As J.D. McClatchy has suggested, if our best poets argue with history, it is the better to provide the moralities of vision. Or perhaps the war gives them a way to talk about where they themselves stand. What has become of the Civil War and what has become of us? Today, 150 years and two months before the war began, we will hear five texts, four poems, and a prose memoir that call it back. 
and we'll see an ongoing engagement with the event itself and with its myriad meanings, public, political, historical, cultural, moral, familial, personal. The past isn't really a foreign country, as L.P. Hartley said, not when it happened right here, not when, with persistence both baffling and understandable, it is still going on. So we're going to hear five readings and then a discussion. And then toward the end, we'll take some questions from you if you have any. Let me introduce the writers. For those of you who aren't familiar, I'll say a couple of words about Alan Tate and Robert Lowell. Though it's hard to say just a couple of words about them, especially Lowell. Uh, we're going to hear a work by each of them. And then we'll hear a work from each of the poets here, Alan Tate American, 1899 to 1979, a Kentucky-born poet, a founding editor of The Fugitive and a member of The Fugitives, who are remembered mainly for two causes, traditionally formal poetry and nostalgia for the agrarian South. Robert Lowell referred to Tate's killing eloquence, and he said, the only one that really got deeply and closely under my skin was Alan Tate. Robert Lowell, 1917 to 1977. He's remembered, of course, as a confessional poet, but his writing ranged widely, both formally and in content. He moved through his decades with allegiance to traditionally formal poems, then to a confessional mode, then to more public poetry. I am learning to live in history, he once said. And in an essay written at the end of his life, Lowell wrote that, looking over my selected poems about 30 years of writing, my impression is that the thread that strings it together is my autobiography. How much to tell, of course, was an argument between Lowell and Tate. Now the poets before us. Frank Bedart is a poet and editor whose most recent collection of poems, collections of poems, are watching the Spring Festival and Stardust, both National Book Awards finalists. His honors include the Wallace Stevens Award, the Morton Dowen Zabel Award, the Shelley Award, and the Bollingen Prize in American Poetry. Bedart co-edited and introduced Robert Lowell's collected poems. He teaches in the English department at Wellesley. Vijay Shishadri is a poet and essayist. His poetry collections are Wild Kingdom and The Long Meadow. The latter won the James Lachlan Prize. Other honors include the McDowell Colony's Fellowship for Distinguished Poetic Achievement. Shishadri reviews books for The New Yorker, The New York Times Book Review at all, and directs the graduate program in creative nonfiction at Sarah Lawrence. Finally, Kevin Young is the author of seven books of poetry, including Dear Darkness and Ardency, recently published. Young is also the editor of five anthologies, most recently The Art of Losing, Poems of Grief and Healing. He is Atticus Haygood Professor of Poetry and Curator of Literary Collections and the Raymond Donowski Poetry Library at Emory University. I'm going to distribute copies of the texts in case you'd like to read along. And then we'll have the readings, and then we'll talk about them. We will begin with a recording of Alan Tate's Ode read by the author. Ode to the Confederate Dead. Row after row with strict impunity. The headstones yield their names to the element. The wind whirs without recollection. In the riven troughs, the splayed leaves pile up. 
of nature, the casual sacrament to the seasonal eternity of death. Then, driven by the fierce scrutiny of heaven to their election in the vast breath, they suff the rumor of mortality. Autumn is desolation in the plot of a thousand acres where these memories grow from the inexhaustible bodies that are not dead, but feed the grass row after rich row. Think of the autumns that have come and gone, ambitious November with the humors of the year, with a particular zeal for every slab, staining the uncomfortable angels that rot on the slabs, a wing chipped here, an arm there, the brute curiosity of an angel's stare turns you, like them, to stone, transforms the heaving air, till plunged to a heavier world below. You shift your sea space blindly, heaving, turning, like the blind crab. Dazed by the wind, only the wind, the leaves flying, plunge. You know who have waited by the wall, the twilight certainty of an animal, those midnight restitutions of the blood you know, the immitigable pines, the smoky freeze of the sky, the sudden call. You know the rage, the cold pool left by the mounting flood of muted Zeno and Parmenides. You who have waited for the angry resolution of those desires that should be yours tomorrow, you know the unimportant shrift of death, and praise the vision, and praise the arrogant circumstance of those who fall rank upon rank, hurried beyond decision. Here by the sagging gate, stopped by the wall. Seeing, seeing only the leaves flying, plunge, and expire. Turn your eyes to the immoderate past, under the inscrutable infantry rising demons out of the earth, they will not last. Stone wall, stone wall, and the sunken fields of hemp. Shiloh, Antietam, Malvern Hill, Bull Run. Lost in that orient of the thick and fast, you will curse the setting sun. Cursing only the leaves crying like an old man in a storm. You hear the shout, the crazy hemlocks point with troubled fingers to the silence which smothers you, a mummy, in time. The hound bitch, toothless and dying, in a musty cellar hears the wind only. Now that the salt of their blood stiffens the saltier oblivion of the sea, seals the malignant purity of the flood, what shall we who count our days and bow our heads with a commemorial woe? in the ribboned coats of grim felicity. What shall we say of the bones unclean, whose virtuous anonymity will grow? The ragged arms, the ragged heads and eyes lost in these acres of the insane green. The gray lean spiders come, they come and go. In the tangle of willows without light, the singular screech owl's tight invisible lyric seeds the mind with the furious murmur of their chivalry. We shall say only the leaves flying, plunge and expire. We shall say only the leaves whispering in the improbable mist of nightfall that flies on multiple wing. Night is the beginning and the end, and in between the ends of distraction waits mute speculation, 
the patient curse that stones the eyes, or like the jaguar leaps for his own image in a jungle pool, his victim. What shall we say who have knowledge cared to the heart? Shall we take the act to the grave? Shall we more hopeful set up the grave in the house, the ravenous grave? Leave now the shut gate and the decomposing wall. The gentle serpent, green in the mulberry bush, riots with his tongue through the hush, sentinel of the grave who counts us all. Next, we will hear Robert Lowell's For the Union Dead, read by Lowell's editor, the poet Frank Bedart. There's an epigraph to the uh, Lowell poem, and it is the um, Latin epigraph that is uh, affixed to the memorial by St. Gaudens that this poem is about. Um, the original says, he leaves all behind to protect or preserve or save the state. And Lowell changed he to they. They leave all behind to protect the state. For the Union Dead. Relinquunt omnia servare rem publicam. The old South Boston Aquarium stands in a Sahara of snow now. Its broken windows are boarded. The bronze weather vane cod has lost half its scales. The airy tanks are dry. Once my nose crawled like a snail on the glass. My hand tingled to burst the bubbles drifting from the noses of the cowed, compliant fish. My hand draws back. I often sigh still for the dark downward and vegetating kingdom of the fish and reptile. One morning last March, I pressed against the new barbed and galvanized fence on the Boston Common. Behind their caged yellow dinosaur steam shovels were grunting as they cropped up tons of mush and grass to gouge their underworld garage. Parking spaces luxuriate like civic sand piles in the heart of Boston. A girdle of orange Puritan pumpkin colored girders braces the tingling state house, shaking over the excavations as it faces Colonel Shaw and his bell-cheeked Negro infantry on St. Gordon's shaking Civil War relief, propped by a plank splint against the garage's earthquake. Two months after marching through Boston, half the regiment was dead. At the dedication, William James could almost hear the bronze Negroes breathe. Their monument sticks like a fishbone in the city's throat. Its kernel is as lean as a compass needle. He has an angry, wren-like vigilance, a greyhound's gentle tautness. He seems to wince at pleasure and suffocate for privacy. He is out of bounds now. 
He rejoices in man's lovely, peculiar power to choose life and die. When he leads his black soldiers to death, he cannot bend his back. On a thousand small town New England greens, the old white churches hold their air of sparse, sincere rebellion. Frayed flags quilt the graveyards of the Grand Army of the Republic. The stone statues of the abstract Union soldier grow slimmer and younger each year. Wasp-waisted, they doze over muskets and muse through their sideburns. Shaw's father wanted no monument except the ditch where his son's body was thrown and lost with his niggers. The ditch is nearer. There are no statues for the last war here. On Boylston Street, a commercial photograph shows Hiroshima boiling over a Mosler safe, the rock of ages that survived the blast. Space is nearer. When I crouch to my television set, the drained faces of Negro school children rise like balloons. Colonel Shaw is riding on his bubble. He waits for the blessed break. The aquarium is gone. Everywhere giant finned cars nose forward like fish. A savage servility slides by on Greece. Now the poet Vijay Shishadri will read an excerpt from his memoir, The Nature of the Chemical Bond. Oh, I unfortunately have to talk a little to explain what I'm reading, I think all the other poems we're hearing are uh, acts of memorialization. This is an excerpt about, it's a memorialization of the act of memorialization. So it's kind of one step removed from the lyric gestures you've heard so far and we'll hear again. And uh, it's, really a part of a piece that's about my father and when you know we came here my father came here in 1955 and uh, to get his PhD in physical chemistry which is why the piece is called the nature of the chemical bond and uh, then he came back to India and retrieved us in 59 and we moved to Canada and we were there for two years where he was a postdoctoral fellow at the National Research Council and then he got a uh, job at Ohio State, and we moved to Columbus, Ohio, and uh, he developed through the course of those early years in Ohio a fascination with the Civil War, and, you know, it seems more improbable than it actually is, because when we got to Columbus, it was the 100th anniversary, and there was a lot, you know, I realized looking back that there was a lot of publication, there was a lot of activity, and my father is, and very much was so more even then, 
a product of a very positivist third world attitude. And po I mean positivist in two senses, in terms of uh, logical positivism, which, which means that he was really committed to empiricism, but also positive in the most more general sense in that he thought that there was kind of uh, a way in which to engage the world that was ahistorical that we were kind of post-historical, and that was kind of the belief of Indian intellectuals and third world intellectuals from Africa, from Asia, of his generation, and they were all kind of, uh, they thought that science was gonna lead them out of the past and out of history. And, you know, and so I always thought it was very strange as a child that I was being dragged to Civil War battlefields. And, you know, I mean, I didn't think it was that strange. I thought, you know, oh yeah, everybody goes to Civil War battlefields. And I hated it. And the first part of the piece is about how much I hated being in these cars with my sister throwing up in the back. And, you know, as we were on our way to Antietam or, you know, the wilderness or, you know, Shiloh. And, and uh, but subsequently I realized that it was really sort of coherent and at the time when the Bush administration was contemplating invading Iraq and was in fact planning to invade Iraq, this was in 19, uh, 2003, I sort of said, oh wow, that's really, you know, this really fits into something. And it fit into something for me because I started looking at the Civil War and remembering these things and uh, it fit into a kind of vision of violence and the Civil War, whatever else it is, is preeminently, you know, the most violent episode in American history. I mean, you know, shocking in its violence. So I'm going to read this, and I apologize ahead of time for taking more time than, you know, all of this, you know, great poetry. But uh, there was no way I could excerpt it in such a way that it was smaller. It's just one page, but... Uh, and before the point at which I'm reading... I discuss my father's, the kind of science he does, and his obsession with it. And, uh, and, uh, and then this section starts. When he took a break, he turned to the Great Rebellion, a socialist of the mild Fabian Congress Party variety. Nehru and the vegetarian George Bernard Shaw were among our household gods. He might, if asked, have described the war as a socialist war, prosecuted, whatever the concomitant or efficient reasons, to eliminate capitalism's most vicious practice, chattel slavery. No one was around to ask him, though, except me, and I couldn't have framed such a question. So he was required to confess nothing. I can't remember his ever telling me anything about the Civil War that carried the faintest odor of morality or politics or interpretation. He seemed to accept unquestioningly the then and still prevalent notion of the war by which the imperatives of the North were balanced by the valor and passion and superior skillfulness of the underdog South, lifting the conflict beyond partisanship, beyond good and evil, clarifying it until it became a smooth, simple drama whose meaning was contained deep within itself. He fell in step with the thinking about the war that saw motives as local and the deeper causality subsumed by tactics, strategy, movement, battle lines, salience and bridgeheads, preponderant forces and materiel, 
clemencies and inclemencies of weather and chaotic mischances and coincidences. In the books he read, in the brochures he collected, there was no interest in justification, no question of right or wrong. Everyone was forgiven in the end except that small gallery of characters that, that includes Val Landingham, Quantrill, J and John Wilkes Booth. This was perfect for him. It gave scope to his instinctive empiricism and his discomfort with generalities, which were suspicious with hidden and untenable assumptions. The Civil War was as fundamental, as immutable as the submolecular realm, a modernist war made for the modernist he was then and still is, as clear and impenetrable as a line by Wallace Stevens or a Calder Mobile. It referred to nothing but itself. Wrapped in its structures, though, was a human heroism pure and appalling and desperate. So pure and appalling and desperate that it, too, seems immutable. This was something my father understood. These were the desperate frequencies that set his atomic particles vibrating. He had been orphaned of his father at an early age in a cholera epidemic that almost took him away at the same time. He'd also survived smallpox. His family had been thrown into poverty and a humiliating dependency. They hadn't experienced the most terrible Indian destitution, but India has many destitutions, and they always heard one or another coughing and shuffling outside their door. His education had been financed entirely by the scholarships and fellowships available in what was then the princely state of Mysore which may have been the most advanced of the Indian princely states in the decades before independence, and in the world beyond. If the massive silence that lies at the center of his psyche is any indication, his character had not only been defined but pretty much exhausted by frugality, anxiety, and constant labor. His one chance, his one grace, had been science. He once said to me, in wonder rather than bitterness. If I hadn't found science, I would have been nothing. Hundreds of thousands of men throwing themselves against the merciless fire of a technology that had left the tactics of their officers far behind. The desperation. Fundamental and astounding, Lincoln called it, meaning that even he had no words. The self moves beyond dread and terror and confronts its essential poverty and nakedness and isolation. This my father understood too well and too immediately. The conflict was vivid to his moody, wordless fatalism. His sense, so strange in the bountiful middle America of the early 60s, that all choices narrowed to one choice which wasn't a choice at all, but was construed as such by our incorrigible gift for deceiving ourselves into thinking we're free. And so, the following, suitably edited to disguise their violence, became the bedside anecdotes of my childhood's middle years. In the twilight of early May, a mistaken fusillade from his own men cuts down Stonewall Jackson, out scouting enemy lines. Lee, my father says, will miss him at Gettysburg. The citizens of Cherbourg come down to the Keys to watch the Alabama and the Kursarge trading broadsides in the harbor. Eventually, my father says, the captain of the Alabama will strike his colors and then throw himself overboard. 
Forrest's cavalry harasses the flanks, exploding out of the woods and forcing the Union soldiers to scatter across the deadfall in the scrub. In one half hour, after a blundering delay by his generals, Grant loses 7,000 men, dead or maimed. Hello, I'm Kevin. Um, I want to thank Sally so much for organizing this. Um, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm going to read my poem, which is called For the Confederate Dead. Um, I suppose you can see by the title uh, that's arguing both with history and with um, poetry. Um, specifically Robert Lowell, who I'm sort of always arguing with in some way. Um, and uh, what else to say about it? Um, I had a book by this title, which I had always had this title um, after I wrote the poem. I thought this is going to be the name of the book. And uh, I was, it was so hard to write a Confederate, de you know, a poem saying that. Um, and I called up my publisher and said, I don't know if I can do it. I mean. I'm going to get letters from reenactors, you know. Um, they're going to find out I'm black. I, you know, it was like a whole. So I made them put some black people on the cover. And interestingly, I think people understood that the, in the, at least the whole book, I don't know if it's in the poem specifically, that I was interested in the idea of confederate in its sort of original meaning, an ally, um, a friend. So this poem is for, for the confederate dead. It has an epigraph from Whitman. I go with the team also. For the Confederate dead. These are the last days, my television says. Tornadoes, more rain, overcast, a chance of sun, but I do not trust weathermen, never have. In my fridge, only the milk makes sense, expires. No one, much less my parents, can tell me why my middle name is Lowell. And from my table, across from the Confederate monument to the dead, that pale finger bone, a plaque declares war, not civil or between the states, but for Southern independence. In this cafe, below sea and eye level, a mural runs the wall, flaking, a plantation scene most do not see. It's too much around the knees, height of a child. In its fields, Negroes bend to pick the endless white. In livery, a few drive carriages like slaves, whipping the horses, faces blank and peeling. The old hotel lobby this once was no longer welcomes guests. Maroon ledger bellboy's gone, but for this. Like an inheritance, the owner found it, stripping hundred years, at least, of paint and plaster. More leaves each day. In my movie, there are no horses, no heroes, only draftees fleeing into the pines, some few who survive, gravely wounded, lying burrowed beneath the dead, silent, until the enemy bayonets what is believed to be the last 
of the breathing. It is getting later. We prepare for wars no longer there. The weather inevitable, unusual, more this time of year than anyone ever seed. The earth shudders, the air. If I did not know better, I would think we were living all along a fault. How late it has gotten. Forget the weatherman whose maps move, blink, but stay crossed with lines none have seen. Race instead against the almost rain, digging beside the monument a giant anchor till we strike water, sweat fighting the sleepwalking air. And finally, Frank Bedart reading his poem, To the Republic. To the Republic. Uh, this is, poem is dated 2005. To the Republic. I dreamt I saw a caravan of the dead start out again from Gettysburg close-packed, upright in rows, on rail car flatbeds in the sun. They soon will stink. Victor and vanquished shoved together. Dirt had bleached the blue and gray, one color. Risen again from Gettysburg, as if the state were shelter, crawl to through blood risen disconsolate, that we now ruin the great work of time. They roll in outrage across America. You betray us, is blazoned across each chest. To each eye as they pass, you betray us. Assaulted by the impotent dead, I say it's their misfortune and none of my own. I dreamt I saw a caravan of the dead move on wheels, touching rails without sound to each eye as they pass. You betray us. <laughs> 